This morning I invite you to turn with me to the New Testament book of Acts, chapter 2 of, uh, of the book of Acts is where we're going to be looking this morning. We're going to be looking specifically at the uh, last two verses of that chapter, verses 46 and 47. You are no doubt familiar with Acts chapter 2 as the, um, the chapter that contains the fulfillment of God's promises, the promise that, uh, that Christ referred to as the promise of the Father, coming of the Holy Spirit to dwell in the hearts of believers who trust in Christ by faith. And um, we find that prophecy uh, throughout the Old Testament writers, and uh, we find it fulfilled here in Acts chapter 2. And we're going to look at the, the last couple of verses of that chapter. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Amen. Amen. A, uh, a brief text but a text that is, um, in my mind, a bit, uh, a bit peculiar. Um, you find this at the, at the close of the discussion of what all took place on that day we call Pentecost. On Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came as the disciples and the other faithful believers in Christ had, had gathered up in the upper room. And the Holy Spirit come, and we read of the tongues of fire that, that descended and rested upon all those who were present. We, we read of all the happenings that then take place in the sermon that, that Peter preached and that so many were converted to Christ in that, in that single day. And then you have just a paragraph at the end of that chapter, beginning of verse 40, about the, the life of the early church, the life of that apostolic uh, church as they gathered together and, and all the things that God was doing through them and those who were being baptized and those who... Um, People were selling what they had so that they could provide for the poor among them. And we read that they had all things in common. And, uh, and you have that little paragraph that, it, that expresses the, the early life, uh, the, the, uh, the early life of the early church. And you find those two verses there at the end. They were gathering in the temple daily. They were breaking bread in each other's houses. Not breaking the windows of each other's houses, breaking bread in each other's houses. And they were, they were sharing this life together. And then you find that little, little clause, and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. I don't think that's, uh, uh, I don't think it's coincidence that the scriptures tell us that people were being saved daily as this type of life was being experienced among the people. While in seminary, I pastored a uh, small country church, Independent Methodist Church in Ackerman, Mississippi. And uh, there's, there's, there's a particular language um, that, that takes place in the country, and you, you no doubt have heard the jokes about it. You, you no doubt are familiar with some of that language. Uh, one, of the, one of the peculiar things about country life and country language is that when you say we're going to have a fellowship, what you mean really is we're going to eat. It, that's a, that's, there's a one-to-one uh, -one corollary there. If we're going to have a fellowship, we will be consuming something with our mouths, and it will be tasty. Food is fellowship. That's kind of a motto that, that we have in the God Bolt house around our table. 
the kids are wanting to get up early. We're like, no, food is fellowship. We've got food here. We're eating. Even if you're done, we're going to stay and we're going to talk until everyone's done. You know what happens when you gather around the table with friends and family, uh, people that you perhaps don't see daily. Hopefully, folks that you do see daily as you gather around for a, for a meal together as a family. There's, there's, a, there's a, a different kind of life that takes place at the table. There's a, uh, a, 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 um, there's a different spirit that you find. There's the sharing of, of laughter, the sharing of the day's events, the, share, the sharing of the chaos that was at work, uh, the sharing of how relaxing it was to get to run to the spa or whatever happened in the day. That sort of, of life that we find at the table is not coincidental. It is, it's, it's um, I believe, the scriptures profess that there is that there's a shared life that takes place at a meal when we gather together. One of the most depressing things is to be on a trip and have to sit at a table in a restaurant all by yourself. You ever done that? It's pretty, it's pretty, uh, pretty disheartening. Um, most of us will get the food and take it back to the hotel room and we'll eat it in front of the TV by ourselves rather than sitting in the restaurant by yourself. We like what happens when we sit among friends. We like what happens when we partake of a meal with others. And that's not unique to us. That's not unique to 21st century American Western culture. That is something that is found in all parts of the world throughout all time. Because food means fellowship. This evening, we've planned a, uh, a Super Bowl party. And I believe this is the third, third, maybe fourth year that we've done this. And we always have an incredible time. We always have, have hilarious uh, things that are said. We laugh. We joke. We, we rewind to see the hit on the, on the, on the screen again because you know, God just got his helmet knocked off. Um, we have a good time watching the Super Bowl. We have a good time even watching the Super Bowl and sharing in a meal, we have that good time in Christ. And the scriptures tell us that if, if what we do can't be done in the name of Jesus, then we ought not to do it. And even in our merrymaking, even in our fellowshipping, we sense the presence of Jesus. Um, if you're not planning on coming, please holler at Bill this afternoon and, or, or right after the service say, hey, I am planning on coming now. Uh, add me to the list. We'll have plenty of food. Um, there, there's a, a, a sort of intimacy that takes place as we fellowship together. And by fellowshipping, I'm talking about partaking of a meal specifically here. There's, there's an intimacy that takes place. There's really kind of a, a sense of vulnerability. Because when we partake of food, we are, we are partaking of something that is life-giving. We are, we are even unconsciously acknowledging that we need something else to, to, to sustain us. When we put that bite in our mouths, we are acknowledging and affirming the fact that we do not have life in ourselves. We cannot give ourselves life. No one ever just springs up out of nowhere. People spring up in the context of loving families. And, um, and no one can sustain his own life. Um, and so as we share food, we, we share in a thing that is intimate. We share in a thing that, is, that makes us vulnerable. We, we acknowledge that we need sustenance for life. And the church has a meal that is, uh, has been given to us. As Jesus 
as Jesus, um, the night before he was betrayed, shared in the Passover meal with his disciples, he gave them this meal, this sacrament, this, uh, this meal of remembrance, this meal in which they were to celebrate his presence among them, in which they were to remember his death for them. We call it Holy Communion. And there's no coincidence in that, because in this meal we are, we are uniting together. We are sharing in something. There is a communion that takes place in this meal. There, we refer to it also as the Eucharist, uh, a Greek term. If you've ever referred to the Eucharist, you have used Greek. You can be proud of yourself. The Eucharist simply means the giving of thanks. And this meal is a, is a meal in which we come before God. We arrive at His table and we share in this meal that He's given to us and we give thanks for the sacrifice of Christ. And we share in this meal. We commune in it together. In fact, it was in this context that, that Paul was scathing to the Corinthian believers. We always hear that passage quoted. You know, let each one of you examine yourselves before you come and partake of this meal unless you eat it and bring damnation upon yourself. And, but the context there, if you go back and look in 1 Corinthians, is that he's talking to people who are divisive and fighting and backbiting and the poor are being put out and the, the wealthy are eating first and they're gobbling it all up. And then Paul says that there's, there's nothing left for the poor among them. Insane what you hear taking place in Paul's words in that, in, that, uh, in that carnal, disbelieving church. And Paul says it ought not to be so. This is a meal, and he says, we, there is but one body, the church. There is but one loaf, which represents the body. There is one Lord, one God. There is one cup. And all this oneness reminds us that we come in unity. We come to commune together. We do not come as individuals to take of something. We come as the body of Christ to receive something. So later on, actually, when we uh, partake of the elements together, uh, what we're going to do is we're going to cup our hands and hold out. And Daniel will be with the bread and he is going to place bread in your hand. Because we do not take from God. We receive from Him as grace. But there's this, this intimacy, this vulnerability, this sharing in life that takes place as we gather around a table such as the Lord's table, just um, in, in some respects as what we find as we gather at the kitchen table, at the dining room table, at the Applebee's table, at the Westcott diner table. As we gather together with with others to share in a meal, we share in this sense of intimacy. And we indeed share fellowship together. There's a significance in, in the consumption of food. And that significance is not just biological. We don't just eat food because it helps our bodies to grow and develop. Uh, there's, there's, a, there's a cultural significance. You find um, if, uh, that sharing in meals and, and enjoying certain types of meals is not just something unique to our culture. Uh, I was watching a report just, um, just a couple of days ago about the shortage in chicken wings and how chicken wing prices go up just prior to the Super Bowl and why is it? And, you know, the, 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 uh, the, the laws of, um, of uh, supply and demand and, and all that. 
you know, there's something cultural about that. Uh, but but all cultures have their own particular peculiarities about about food. You find bread referred to and wine referred to all throughout the scriptures because those were those were some of the most fundamental elements of a meal in the Mediterranean cultures. Uh, bread was sustenance. Wine was joy and life-giving. You find a biblical significance spoken of all throughout the scriptures, not just in the Old Testament, but even also in the New Testament. You find this rhythm of life that exists in the worshiping body of fasting and feasting as they abstain from meals and then as they enjoy meals. I, I said, uh, I think right after Christmas, we don't know how to celebrate. Feasting back in the ancient times, went on for days. For days they enjoyed one another's company. A wedding feast was seven days in the Hebrew culture. For seven days people were celebrating the fact that their friends have just gotten married. That, that these two have come together to form a holy union in God. There's this rhythm of fasting and feasting that, um, that we find permeating the scriptures. And there's a theological significance of food. Like I said, every time we consume food, we are, we are typically unknowingly being reminded of the fact that we need something to sustain us. And we gather at the Lord's table to partake of the Lord's Supper, not just to remember something with some tangible evidence, but we gather... And we are being reminded that we feast on Him in our hearts. Christ said, uh, and this is what drove away countless of His disciples, countless of His followers, the Scriptures tell us in John chapter 6. Um, he says, unless we eat on Him, unless we feast on the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, we have no life in us. Unless we look to Him in faith, Unless we look to Him in, in radical trust, He says we do not have life in ourselves. And as we gather at His table, we are being reminded of His death for us. We are being, um, we are being given grace for the road. Grace for the journey. All throughout the Old Testament, you have... Um, Food being something that's significant. You, you have the instructions given to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden as they were told that they could eat of all the trees that were in the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That tree they were not to eat from. But notice the instructions were regarding the food they were to eat. You find the feast throughout all of Israel. Uh, in, in fact, uh, prior to the feast, you have Noah coming off of the ark and the covenant made by God with Noah that uh, the uh, that they were that they were then to be able to eat um, to eat animals. You had uh, those feasts throughout Israel's um, celebratory life. The chiefest among them being the Passover feast, the feast in which they they were reminded of God's faithfulness to them and His deliverance of them from bondage in Egypt. In the New Testament, you find all throughout the Gospels and the New Testament letters. Uh, different references to feeding. We think of the feeding of the 5,000, but have you read about the reading of the feeding of the 4,000? It's in there. Mark, I know, has both accounts, almost one after the other. You have a feeding of, of a multitude that numbered 5,000 men, supposing women and children are there, 
um, could be up, upwards of 20,000 folks. The feeding of the 4,000, uh, almost as much, not quite. You have the meal that Jesus prepares for his disciples after his resurrection. As, he, as they were out in their boats and they came back to shore and he had prepared a meal for them and shared in that meal. Interestingly enough, you have also the reference to the meal that was partaken of uh, with those two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And when they reached where they were going, they implored Jesus, the resurrected Lord. They didn't yet know that it was him to come in, come in, stay and have a meal with us. And as he broke bread with them, they recognized who he was. In the apostolic church, here in the book of Acts, chapter 2 specifically, you have this reference that they break bread. They broke bread from house to house. They were sharing in meals together. They were fellowshipping. They shared life together. And it was in, it was, it was in this sharing of life together that we find some of the, some of the most interesting things about the New Testament church. The first of those things is that we find this sharing of life, this breaking of bread, this, this meeting at a table was the context of evangelism. It is not uh, coincidental, like I said earlier. It is not coincidental that you read that they are breaking bread from house to house. They eat their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. And then the Lord adds to the church daily those who are being saved. It was in this context of evangelism that they were sharing food. They were winning people to the gospel. They were sharing the life-giving gospel to people as they met from house to house. It was in that sort of context that this explosion of evangelism takes place in the book of Acts. And all throughout those chapters, you read of the disciples traveling together and sharing together, ministering together. They were together each week a whole lot more than you and I are. It is so, so easy. Um, in, in our busy, fast-paced, shooting from the hip, constantly moving culture to basically only see the people we worship with once a week. If that, see you on Sunday for an hour and a half or so and we'll see you next week. It, it, it was, we read that they were, they were meeting in the temple daily. To daily they were getting together for prayer. Daily they were getting together to worship God. Uh, they were entering into that Jewish temple and they were looking at all the all the symbols and signs of God's faithfulness and goodness to them, being reminded of His sacrifice in their behalf. And it's in this context of shared life that you find also the context of evangelism. We, um, we uh, too often, I think, buy into the, 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 um, the business model of evangelism. If we do such and such so many times, if we talk to so many certain people, so many often times, then, then the numbers will come in. But in the scriptures, we find that people are evangelized, that people are one to the gospel because we share life together. And that in that shared life together, we find the biblical context of evangelism. We think of fellowship as time that's wasted by the church. Even in uh, books like The Purpose Driven, uh, the Purpose Driven Church, which I have on my shelf, I've been to the Purpose, Dri Purpose Driven Church con Conference years ago but uh so i'm not i'm not uh i'm not belittling that 
But even in there, you have the five purposes that Rick Warren lines out that he finds in the scriptures for the church. And you have fellowship. And fellowship is, I mean, he gives it a fair hearing, but it, it almost seems like it's just something we do. We get together because, you know, we need to have friends and hang out together. But biblically speaking, it is in fellowship that people come to know Christ. It is in fellowship that people are matured in Christ and are brought to Him. We read in the Gospel accounts of, um, of Jesus, the fellowship that He spent with others at, at table. And notice that the fellowship that He shares with others at table is something that becomes a, uh, a stumbling block for others. We read that he is sharing in meals with harlots, tax collectors, and sinners. And, I mean, the religious elite among them, the authorities, they're up in arms. What in the world is he doing? He's sharing meals with those people? That's right. Jesus was sharing in meals with those who were outside the norm of what was culturally accepted. Outside the norm of what was even religiously accepted. Because he recognized these people need him. Just as much, if not more, than those who have it all together. Question that um, I have to ask myself, and I'd implore you to ask yourself, is how often do we have people we know do not know Christ in our homes to share a meal together? Um, our times of fellowship together as we come together for a big thing like uh, the Super Bowl party or even just times where we have a family of neighbors over to the house those times of fellowship are times in which God can work among us we find um, this uh, context of fellowship coinciding also with the Context of discipleship. Um, these disciples, these believers in Christ, they are meeting daily with one another and they're sharing uh, in meals together from house to house as they break bread. As they grow in their relationship with Christ, they're growing in their relationships with one another. Jesus' commission to his disciples was not go and to win converts, but to go and make disciples of all nations. And notice that he, he calls them to baptize in the triune name, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And as, as he implores them to make disciples, as he commissions them to go out and to preach the gospel and to, and to, to win over uh, disciples and to, to mature those disciples and teach them all the things that he's commanded, he does so in this context of fellowship. John Wesley said there is no such thing as a solitary Christian. And if you uh, think, well, that's just Wesley. Read your scriptures. There is no such thing as a solitary Christian. No one comes to Christ without the influence of others and no one matures in Christ without the influence of others. It's impossible. It's how He created us. He created us in His image and His image is found in that baptismal formula, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
even in his own person, there is three persons in, in shared life and love. And so we, we find discipleship in shared life. One of the, um, one of the greatest ministries that this church uh, has to offer is our ministry of small groups, which, by the way, we'll be starting up here in a few weeks. If, um, if you have not uh, done so in the recent weeks, please take a, take a look at the uh, back of your communication card down at the bottom. You, there's an opportunity to say, hey, please know I'm interested in becoming uh, or in joining a weekly small group. Those will be starting up. And it's, it's in those small groups that we share life in an intense way where we get together weekly for an hour to two hours and, and oftentimes we'll have cake or pie or some snacks, grease, I'll make some uh, pigs in a blanket with some mustard. Um, uh, we, we share in coffee, tea, and, and soft drinks. Uh, and we, we get together and we seriously study together. We read books together and we enjoy one another's uh, community and conversation. Because it is the context of fellowship that coincides with the context of discipleship. Discipleship is not just some, you know, every, every Tuesday in the classroom from 7 to 8 program. It is disciples are made in shared relationships with others. We find also, though, that the, um, the context of fellowship coincides not just with the context of evangelism and the context of discipleship, but even also in the context of worship. It is, uh, it is, it is in worship that, they, that the disciples sense the real presence of God among them. In fact, they found the presence not just of Christ, they found the presence of the triune of God, God among them as they gathered together in worship. They recognized that their worship was being directed to the Father through the Son in the Holy Spirit. And you find all throughout the New Testament um, how the disciples recognize the presence of God among them as they gathered together in worship. They recognize not just God's presence among them, but they, they even recognize the presence of angels among them. There are a few peculiar references. Paul make, makes one in, in, uh, in, in his letters to the Corinthians, and I, I, I'm not going to try to recall all the other references, but there are a few references in the New Testament to angels that are among them. You remember the Hebrews writer saying, don't forget hospitality, because in, in, in opening ourselves to others, many of us have, have uh, entertained angels without even knowing it. The New Testament believers sensed that, that there were heavenly presences among them as they gathered together to worship. And that's why some of the greatest of the hymns refer to us joining our voices with the angels, crown him with many crowns, and all hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. We gather together in the very real presence of God, and we gather together as we fellowship with one another, as we share life, even in this sort of worshiping context, we gather together sharing life, recognizing that we ourselves are joining in with the activity of heaven. Praise and worship is not just something we try to muster up to offer up to God as a gift. 
as we gather for praise and worship, as we gather to sing, as we gather to pray, as we gather to open the scriptures together, as we gather to hear from God together, we, we recognize that this is something that's going on in all of eternity. This is something that the angels are participating in. This is something that we are invited to partake in. It's not just something we muster up to give to God. It's something He invites us to share in. And so it's with that thought in mind that the Hebrews writer tells us, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. So many have just fallen away and thought, eh, i got other things to do. I've got another, a better way to spend my time. Um, the Hebrews writer says, don't, don't fall for that, especially even all the more as you see the day of Christ approaching. It is in this context of fellowship, this context of shared life together, that we find the presence of Jesus among us through His Holy Spirit. Please take out your communication card. On the back of it, um, you'll find these three responses that... um, You'll find also at the back of your bulletin. I want you to hang on to your bulletin throughout the week and want you to drop off your communication card and the offering plate at the back of the sanctuary. Um, and please know that I, I, um, I don't read anything into these more than more than you put on there. Uh, and so if you say, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm gonna open my home to others who don't know Christ. I don't just assume, oh, they're not doing that. It, this is not some, some way that I, that I know uh, what you have or haven't been doing. There are, there are times where, where I'll, I'll, the request will be as specific as, you know, I'm going to, uh, I want God to change the way I think. I don't, that doesn't mean that I assume you've been thinking deplorable thoughts or anything like that. It just is what it is. Uh, but these responses help me to, to know as I pray for you throughout the week, uh, and my, my eyes are the only ones that read these, that these, these responses help me to un- understand what God is doing in your life so that I can be praying with you more specifically um, for strength to fulfill these, uh, these commitments. The first thing I w- would wonder if you would, um, if you would commit to would be that, you know what, I'm going to share my life a bit more intentionally with others. My my evangelism, my sharing the gospel with others, my just being around people—it's just kind of hit or miss. And I, you know, I, I don't I don't really intentionally invest time with other people, and so I'm gonna I'm gonna share my life a bit more intentionally with others. Remember, it is in this context of fellowship that we find um, evangelism, discipleship, and even the worship of God. Secondly, I wonder if you'd say. I'm going to be a part of a small group. I'm going to sign up. You can do that on the bottom of your communication card there on the back. I want to join a small group. And so, Pastor, give me more information about joining a small group, where they meet, when they meet, what books they'll be studying. If you you do so, I'll get all that information to you in an email. And we'll... uh, um, The books are always uh, free of charge to you because we've got those funds budgeted for the church. Um, And so that's... If you join a small group, those uh, books are or a gift to you uh, from our congregation. And um, 
perhaps you would say, Pastor, I want to be a part of one of those weekly small groups as they start up here in the next few weeks. And then lastly, I wonder if you would consider, uh, think back, just think back over the last, uh, say, three months. That takes back, what, into November. Um, how many times have you had folks in your home for a meal? Not just the people around you. I mean, it's good to have you know, your, your uh, brothers and sisters in Christ over to the house for a meal. But how many times have you had the neighbor down the road or the coworker who works across the, uh, across the office from you? How, how, uh, how often? No hands or no numbers held up or anything like that. Don't say, man, I hadn't done it at all. But um, I wonder if each of us, myself included, our family included, would say, you know what, we're going to open up our home to others who don't know Christ. It's good to have Christian brothers and sisters in the house for a meal, but what about others that perhaps you don't know if they know Christ? It's just somebody you want to get to know a little bit better. I wonder if you'd commit saying, I'm going to have our home opened for that. As you pray about um, these responses and as you make those intentions known through marking your card, I want you to bow your heads and let's pray.